What is up, Thrive Tribe? Welcome back to the Thrive University podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, do we have a special treat for you today. We got the one and only <laughs> Scott Abramson in the building. And if he looks familiar, if his last name sounds familiar, he is my father. He's a he's a he's a pretty decent guy. And I'm excited to make this podcast happen. You guys have been requesting it. So again, you ask and you shall receive. So dad, not gonna talk too much early on yeah. about your accomplishments because I know you get a little uncomfortable when we talk about those things, but how does it feel to be in this updated studio? Uh, am I getting paid for this or anything? Or do, I, do I have to pay you or what? how does this work? I don't know. What, You're getting paid thing? with love. Love, okay. That's that's usually the currency, I guess. Uh -huh. Well, uh, here, here at Thrive University, yes. our mission yeah. is to provide people with the tools, with the education that they didn't receive in school. Yeah. And you have over 40 years of neurology under your belt, six decades of practicing medicine. And I feel like there's no better person to add value to this amazing audience than yourself. Well, I'll, I'll try to see what, uh, see what comes up. Uh, you know, we, along the way, uh, I'm six, I'm 70, uh, be 74 years old. So along the way you do pick up a little bits of wisdom and if I can pass anything on, that'd be great. Amazing. So let's dive right in and talk about Neurology. Yes. All right. What exactly does a neurologist do? What is your field of expertise? Yeah. So uh, I was a neurologist uh, for 40 years. I practiced at Kaiser Permanente in Northern California. And uh, neurology, you know, we deal with diseases of the nervous system, such as multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, um, epilepsy, migraines, um, all sorts of things like that. That's kind of the, the uh, diseases that are most common in neurology. But it turns out that, that most doctors who are on the front lines, and I'm just kind of a frontline neurologist, I'm not one of these guys that's in a university and sees, you know, patients that come from one hospital to another. So we're on the front line. So we see a lot of patients that are referred to us for symptoms like headaches, like dizziness, like tingling all over the body, like just feeling no energy. And our job is to decide whether they have any kind of neurological disease. So I would say that most uh, most people like myself, that's what our that's what our job is. And it's a great job because if you can reassure someone that, you know, the headache that they're waking up with at night is not a brain tumor, man, that is such a, that is such a great feeling. And the problem is, is that most, most doctors, I think, and I didn't either, you know, I didn't realize this, the, the joy that can come with that because a lot of physicians, including myself, 
um, would say things like, oh my gosh, it's another dizzy patient, another headache patient, another nothing wrong with them patient, just a worried patient. There's not, they don't have any real neurological disease. Oh, wow, is this really worth my time? But for me, the real joy in, in treating folks was to be able to have someone like that and be able to tell them, yeah, you're okay. You don't have anything bad. Yeah. So when was it? And you can you can hear turn this way. Okay. A little bit. A little okay. Bit. We can uh, kind of go back and forth. Okay. Eye uh, contact uh, is nice. Okay. Um, I, I don't know how this thing works, so I'm so, just doing this. You know. So so you said that it took you quite some time to realize the impact that reassuring a patient had on their well-being, on their peace of mind. When did that light bulb go off for you? And how did that shift the way that you approached your patients and your day-to-day -day job? Yeah, that's Jeremy, really, uh, that, is a, that is a great question. And I don't think that there was one like, you know, uh, 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 I got your moment or things like that. But things gradually, as I got more involved, more and more involved with communication uh, uh, teaching at, at Kaiser, and that was one of my that was one of my jobs too, is to teach kind of bedside manner, teach communication for physicians. And I think that things just gradually sort of dawned on me. And one of the um, instances where I realized this happened, the realization just really hit me. And I saw this, I saw this patient uh, named Joanna. She was like 38 years old. And she came to me because uh, her MRI scan had some funny little findings on it. So they sent her to the neurologist, an MRI scan of the brain. And so I examined her. I talked to her about this. I showed her the MRIs. And basically, there was nothing serious at all wrong. It was just what we call, what we call in the business, a nothingoma. You know, it's, it's just an incidental thing. There's nothing wrong. It's a nothing omen. So I'm telling this to Joanne, and I'm just about to leave the exam room. And she grabs my hand, and she says, Oh, thank you, doctor. Thank you, doctor. I feel so relieved. God bless you, doctor. And, you know, it was kind of embarrassing to me because, you know, all I did was just, you know, look at this, MRI scan that showed a nothing oma. And I said, oh, don't, don't worry, Joanne. No, no, Joanne. It was no problem. It was nothing. That's what I said. And I walked into my office and later on, I started thinking about this. And I thought, you know, to Joanne, this was not nothing. This was something. And, and to Joanne, this was, this was a big something. And to me, it should have been something. It should have been a big something to me. And I remember I saw a license plate once, a bumper sticker. And believe me, I think there's a lot of wisdom in bumper stickers. <laughs> and this bumper sticker said, it's amazing the impact you can have on people's lives and never even realize it. It's amazing the impact you can have on people's lives and never even realize it. And at that moment, I said, you know what? I've gone through so many years of, you know, seeing people like Joanne and having impact on their lives and not, I was, and not even realizing it. 
And I think so many doctors, we go through our lives seeing people with these nothings omas, and we don't realize the blessings of treating people with nothing omas. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a powerful lesson. And I think I can definitely relate to that. There's a lot of times where I get messages on social media or emails and people saying, you know, one post or one thing that I said really helped change the trajectory of their life. And I'm kind of indifferent. I'm like, oh my gosh, like really? That was such a simple message. Yeah. And I sometimes neglect yeah. the impact that, you know, even just opening the door for somebody or yeah. smiling with someone or making yeah. eye contact with someone. Exactly. You know, it's yeah. those small acts of kindness that yeah. can really make a huge transformation in somebody's life. Is there any other And Jeremy, and you know, and and when and when you've done something like that and made a difference in someone's life, the fact is, if we if we don't give ourselves credit for that, I mean, we and oftentimes we don't because we don't think we're doing anything. But what if we did give us, give ourselves credit? Wow. I mean, wouldn't going through life thinking, man, wouldn't that bring us joy and meaning in life if we realize the impact that sometimes we have on people's lives? And sometimes it's just a smile, just a pat on the back. All right. <laughs> okay. So, so this is actually interesting because I still feel like this is something you struggle with is actually accepting compliments, accepting praise. It seems to me that you're very quick to kind of shrug these things off and dismiss them. So yeah. what about, what is it about receiving compliments that is so challenging for you? Because it seems like it's something that you're still struggling with to some extent um yeah is it is a is a camera one because yeah, yeah, yeah oh it's, it's on. okay all right I, okay yeah you know i i don't know um i think we're all kind of taught you know don't brag don't toot your own horn let you know the and, and you know let other my mother said you know don't don't toot your own let other people toot it you know if they if it deserves to be tooted but um, I, I don't know, Jeremy. I, I, um, I, I think it is a challenge, though, for most, for a lot of people to accept, to accept not just praise from others, but self-praise. You know, it, it's a challenge, I think, for all of us. And just like this lady with a nothing Oma, believe me, for many years of my practice, I would have walked out and said, no problem, no problem. It was nothing, you know, kind of, no but to to give yourself that credit, to give yourself to feel good about what you did, again, I think it can just bring so much joy and meaning into your life. But we all struggle against our our own demons, our own self. Hmm. Well, I'm glad you mentioned this, Dad. Um, perfect. So, come on, come on, okay. closer. Okay. So, so you mentioned that we all struggle against these inner demons, these self-limiting beliefs. And I'm curious to know today, as a 73-year-old man who's accomplished a lot in his life and his career, what is one limiting belief or demon that still lingers in your mind? You know, 
here's the thing. Um, a lot of us, a lot of times, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we've done, a lot of times we're still stuck in our childhood and, and our childhood relationships. Um, I personally, um, the, the, the difficult childhood issue for me, I had wonderful parents and so forth, but I had an, I had an older sister who was really a, a bully. And I, I got to tell you, I lived in fear of her. She could just, you know, give me a glance. She could just, you know, give me a, a facial thing or say just a word and, and I would cringe. And I really, I lived in fear of my sister. And even to, and, and even today, you know, I, I can feel that sometimes coming up. And sometimes in the most, you know, simplest things. Um, like, here's an example. Here's an example, Jeremy. So a while ago, um, that talking to the mic. Oh, okay. Okay. So a while ago, uh, I needed to talk to another doctor. Um, this doctor, or one of my colleagues had, said something to a patient that was just, I felt was inappropriate. And I wanted to talk to this doctor. So I leave a message on his phone mail. And the first day goes back and uh, he didn't answer me back. And I'm going, oh, I'm getting a little irritated. The second day, he still didn't answer back. And I'm really getting a little angry. The third day, he still didn't answer back. And I'm thinking, you know, I I'm, I'm ready to rip out his eyeballs and eat him for lunch. Hmm. So the fourth day, he calls back and he says, uh, Scott, you know, I'm uh, sorry I, I didn't call you, uh, but I was out of town and I had an emergency and I didn't turn off my phone mail. Oh, but see, I was ready in those four days. I would wake up at two in the morning. I'd be, you know, ready to do damage to him. And I realized that what I was feeling was I wasn't getting respect. This guy was disrespecting me, and it reminded me of the same disrespect, the same fear that I had for my sister. And it just goes to show these things, you know, you know that movie um, with Fred Rogers, uh, My Neighborhood, you know, uh, what was that movie? Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, and it was called uh, something about the neighborhood. Anyway, so Mr. Rogers, you know, was, for those of you who don't know, had this children's show. And it was a really, really good show. And one of the things he said is there's one thing in life you can never lose. One thing in life you can never lose. And that's your childhood. Mm. Childhood. You, you know, and, and I think the thing is that we, a lot of times we can't lose it. It's going to, you know, creep up at the weirdest moments. And, and, and. And I don't think the, th the, the thing that we have to do is try to deny it or say it's not there, but just accept it. Mm. Just realize it for what it is and try to move on. And once you understand it, once you understand what those forces are, you're not going to get rid of it, but just understand it. And I think you can, you know, have a much more uh, joyous life. I think... The I appreciate you sharing that. I think <clears throat> I think all of these moments and memories from the past, especially the ones that are attached to really powerful emotions, they're gonna always remain with us. Yeah. 
right? They're memories that are etched in our mind. Right. So to think you can erase the memory is unrealistic. Yeah. However, what you can really do work on is changing your relationship with that memory, with that mem with that moment, with that event from the past, whether it was something that instilled fear in you, whether it was a trauma that has been lingering for years and decades, you can get to a place with practice where you can actually become grateful for that experience because it did help shape you into the person you are today. It did probably teach you a valuable lesson. Maybe it was painful. It was likely painful. However, if you can escape being a prisoner of your past feelings and emotions, then you can finally step in to the power and potential that you were destined for. And yeah, yeah, I love that, Jeremy. And I know you have this saying, I love the saying that you have, it says things don't happen to you, they happen for you. Things don't happen to you, they happen for you. I love that. And, and it's true, you know, you, if you, you, you have to be grateful. I love the way you said that. You have to be grateful for even those bad things that happen to you. Because what they do is they bring you understanding. And, and they bring you understanding of your fellow humans. So when you see one of your fellow humans going through this, or recreating bad memories, or having bad memories that are shaping their lives, you know, you can understand it on a, on a real personal level and it, and it gives you connection to other human beings. Mm -hmm. So you know what? I, so I, I am, I do not, I do not feel like a victim in any way. I'm, you're right. It's, I never thought of it that way, but I do feel grateful that that happened because it's just one of those life events that gives me more understanding. Yeah. I think also in that story you shared about the other doctor and you're waiting to hear back from him. Yeah. Oftentimes we lack the perspective, we lack the compassion and we make assumptions. Yeah. Right? We jump to conclusions. Yeah. That's and right. and we never know what somebody else is experiencing in their life whether it is a health issue, whether it's something with their family, whether it's something with their work. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that we have no idea about. So it's just a valuable reminder to do your best not to make assumptions. And you felt all of those negative feelings and emotions come to the surface. Yeah. And I think that's where so many people live is they have the same repetitive toxic thought patterns that lead to the same feelings and emotions. And then those feelings and emotions lead to certain actions and behaviors that you're probably going to regret later because they're coming from such a negative headspace. Right, right. And that's exactly right because I was so stuck in this childhood paradigm of disrespect and being bullied that I couldn't see uh, that it blinded my judgment to other possibilities that might be going on, like the guy had a family emergency and couldn't and turned, didn't turn off his phone mail. And you know that so and and um, I think it was Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, who said something like this. He said, um, 
the things that annoy us and irritate us about others can give us so much insight into ourselves. Mm. The things that annoy us about others can give us so much insight into ourselves. Now, that's, that's one way of, of looking at it. And another way to put it, as my grandma used to say, is when you point your finger at someone, there's always three pointing back. Mm. Carl Jung was also responsible. I mean, what you're describing is basically the idea of shadow work. Usually the thing that triggers us the most in other people is something that is a reflection of ourselves. Exactly, exactly. And that's, and that's exactly what, what went on in that, in that interaction that I had. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I was back. I was, I was back at eight years old. I mean, I'm 74 years old and, and here I am suddenly, you know, I'm going back to, to eight years old, you know, and, uh, it, it wasn't pleasant, but, uh, like I said, it's, and I'm not going to ever get rid of that. I'm not going to ever get rid of that. But if I understand it, I think my life will be better. Yeah. Bring awareness to these different moments and memories from the past that manifest into your life today. That's the most important thing because once you become aware and conscious of those habits and triggers, then you're in a position to actually take ownership of them and not be a prisoner or slave to them. Yeah. Now, I'm gonna share something with you that I don't think I've ever shared with you. So, uh oh, yeah, this is, so, so, um, it's good, don't worry. Okay. So, in my first, for, okay, actually, no, this happened, this actually really came up during this personal development program I did. Okay. And, and on the third day, the instructor said, you have to come back tomorrow with a completely shaved beard. She said all of the men had to come back with no facial hair. Okay. And as I'm driving back home, I'm actually getting really upset. I'm getting really triggered. I'm like, who the hell is this woman to tell me to shave my face? Like, what, who is she? And I was like looking at myself in the mirror when I got home and I was genuinely contemplating not coming back. I was that upset. I was like, who is this person? So then I was starting to think about why am I so attached to this beard? Yeah. Why am I so attached? And I think it's because when I first started to be able to grow facial hair, I was like, oh, like it's a sign of manhood it's a sign of maturity right yeah and i remember if i the thought coming up like if i shave this off then i go back to being a child i go back to not being important i get i go back to this time of of not really being valued and i was trying to figure out where does this where where's this all stemming from what's the root cause so this is what i came up with in elementary school. Yeah. And maybe even in middle school. I was known to be a talkative kid in class, right? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I did well in school. I, I was a respectful kid, but you know, at that age, when you're with your friends, you're goofing off, you're doing things, you're making funny faces, maybe you're getting a couple spitballs going. And I remember my dad, 
pretty much at the beginning of every school year would tell the teachers, hey, if Jeremy acts up in class, here's my number, give me a call. I want to be the first to know about it. So evidently these calls would happen. My dad probably got a call from almost every teacher. Once in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but Jeremy, the other day, Jeremy shared this with me is, I, I don't know what I was doing. I was thinking I was writing a check or something. And Jeremy says, you know, dad, I have got, I, I have, the, I can forge your signature perfectly. He said, I've had so much practice doing this during my school years. And he showed me, he actually signed my name. It sounded just like I, and I thought to myself, God, how many messages from his teachers did I miss? How many report cards did he sign that I never saw? And uh, I mean, it's too late now, but it just got me to thinking, yeah. So what I was going to say yeah. as I continue this story. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. No, 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 it's uh, fine. What I was going to say is after you would receive a call from a teacher, yeah, you would typically have me write lots of sentences oh yeah yeah to the liking of i will not talk in class i will not talk in class i will not talk in class i mean i'm telling you i wrote thousands of these sentences yeah. in my elementary career yeah. probably tens of thousands to the point where i felt like my wrist might fall off now this is where the punchline happens so i believe at that young age subconsciously from writing this so much I feel like I almost silenced my voice uh -huh. later, in, like in middle school, in high school, even in college, there's lots of times where I wanted to speak up. There's a lot mm -hmm. of times I wanted to stand up for things that I believed in or stand up against things that I didn't believe in mm -hmm. that I thought were unjust that were taking place. But I had this subconscious belief that my voice didn't matter. Mm -hmm. So the reason I'm sharing this with you is because obviously I know that wasn't your intention no. when, when having me do this exercise, but it's just to really demonstrate how important and impactful these different events from your childhood are in how they can transform your mind in very unexpected ways. Yeah. 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 And, you know, as I mean, as a parent, you think you're, you know, doing what you think is the best thing. And, you know, you just you, you never know. You never know. Um, there's yeah. no rule book. No, there's, there's no rule book. There's no rule book. And I wasn't telling you that story to make no, you I feel know. bad in any way. No, I know. Because as you know, and as the people listening and watching know, you are my number one inspiration. My... The guy that I really admire so much um, for your humility, your kindness, your generosity. And I'm curious to know, because I know you admired your dad, yeah. Grandpa George, a right. lot. Yeah. And I'm curious to know, what were the three biggest lessons that you learned from Grandpa George, from your dad? Wow. Yeah, um, uh, my father, um, uh, my father, you know, grew up in the school of hard knocks. I mean, when he was 13, he ran away from home. He had to make a living himself. He was a, 
he was a, a life, he made a living, you know, as salesman. He was, mainly was selling vacuum cleaners for a lot of part of his life, moving all over the country. Um, and, uh, you know, growing up at 13, leaving home, his parents kind of abandoned him. Um, you know, the thing about my father is he had such a positive attitude about life such a positive attitude about life. He never, ever considered himself a, a victim of anything. The big, and the saying that he would always say, and this is a saying of his generation, you know, he grew up in the Great Depression and, and so forth. But the saying is, you know, uh, he would say, uh, I felt sorry for myself because I had no shoes. Then I met a man who had no feet. And that was sort of the thing that, the the, the um, uh, kind of sayings that the values that he, that he and his generation live by. You know what? You you be thankful for what you have. You don't. You know, um, people are always worse off. Be thankful for what you have. So, I think that positive attitude is is really um, uh, what I admire him the most. And and the other thing is that he loved people. He was a very. Here's the thing. He's a salesman. Uh, but he's a very quiet guy, and um, but he but he made a good living. He was successful. So the thing is, how do, how does that how does that you know how does that he didn't you know take his take his clients out to, to have a drink. He didn't go to parties with them. Nothing like that. But he was a great salesman, and the reason is is because you know he listened. He listened. People, he would go up to a, a client, and I used to make rounds with him, and he'd say, he'd say, so what's new, Joe? And then Joe would tell him what's new. And my dad would kind of smile, he'd chuckle, put his hand on his shoulder, and, that, and Joe felt great because my dad listened. He liked to hear people talk. He liked to hear the stories. Mm. Yeah. By the way, you know, my, my dad, my dad lived to be 101 and uh, my mother lived to be almost 100. They were married for like 75 years or something like that. And um, but and oh, here I know a lot of people are here are interested in, you know, health and wellness and that stuff. What my father lived to be 101. There's one thing he never did. One thing he never did. You know what that was? I think I've told you. I'll tell your audience. He never exercised. <laughs> Hundred. I mean, in those days, see, in those days, a guy would go to work. He'd come home. He'd eat his dinner. He'd sit in his armchair. He'd read his paper. He'd take his nap. If you would have gone up to him and say, uh, "George, um, you know, why don't you uh, get some cardio? Why don't you run around the block or something?" You know, I mean. I mean, this is different. He would have looked at you like you'd landed from Neptune or something, really. Well, that's not so surprising because it it can sound like a message that might not be promoting health. However, he was still active in his day-to-day -day life. He wasn't sitting all day. He wasn't, you know... He wasn't, he wasn't stagnant. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, true. And if you look at, I mean, if you look at the blue zones, the seven areas around the world with the highest concentration of centenarians, none of them are 
training in a structured way. However, they all are moving constantly throughout the day, whether that's a 10 minute walk, whether that is um, playing with their children or their grandchildren, they're staying active. And that is really important because that's going to help generate blood flow. It's going to help you stay in motion creatively and cognitively. So what are some other what are some other things? Maybe let's talk about three. Let's 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 talk about three things that people can do and take action on right now that are going to boost their brain health and overall longevity. Well, there, I think the thing with my father, you're right. I mean, he was, you know, he would make the rounds, he would walk, you know, during the day. Um, the other thing is, you know, he he didn't uh, smoke or drink or, you know, or, you know, abuse himself in other ways. He, uh, uh, his, his diet was, uh, he, he ate a healthy diet, basically. Every day, my mother uh, would make, they'd go to work together, and my mother would make them tuna fish sandwiches on rye bread. And that's what they ate for lunch every day. Um, I don't, maybe that had something to do with it. But... And, and oh, that's so I, I told you that uh, that my mother lived almost to be 100. My father was 101. My mother, my mother used to say, George, if you die on me, I'm going to kill you. But, you know, eventually they, their souls rest in peace. They, they have passed on. So I th the other thing that my father had, I think my father and mother had, which um, which wasn't passed on to me, is they were they had a lot of really good friends. They kept making good friends. And I'm not talking about just social going to the party and, you know, having the drinks and slapping people. They really had sincere good friends that would that they would go over to their homes. They would come over to our homes and they would talk. And um, it was a, that the, the friendships, I think, were so important. Mm. I think that's a and, and, and I know that the that the studies show that those people that people that do have social outlets that have community that have friends that that is one of those um, factors in, in longevity, which makes it which makes it kind of a challenge for people who are introverts. And, you know, for myself, you know, I'm I am kind of an introvert. I really am. And. Um, it is a challenge for me. Uh, I, I really, I enjoy people. I like it, but I, but I also get, um, energy from being alone or being just with my wife, with, with Jeremy's mom. And, you know, the, they say the definition of a, of an, of an introvert, the introvert says, you know, the best part of going out is coming home. And sometimes like, like sometimes that'll, that'll be me, you know, I'll go out, I'll enjoy talking to people and everything, but boy, I, I can't wait to get home and get into my bed and just read a book and mm -hmm. something like that. So it's, it could be a challenge, I think, for people who are naturally introverted. Mm. So there's definitely something to be said about the importance of genuine relationships, people that you can really count on, people that you can really trust. Mm -hmm. And I know that in your work at Kaiser, you did a lot of work regarding communication between 
physician and patient and, and between physicians as well. Yeah. So what are some of the key components to not only communicating effectively, but also building a sustainable relationship and connection? Yeah. So, um, um, so I, I was a physician at, at, for 40 years. In the last 20 or so years, I, I really uh, had a passion for working on communication issues. And uh, I think this is a quote by George Bernard Shaw. He said, um, the biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it's taken place. Mm. Biggest problem with communication is the illusion. And boy, does that apply to doctors. I mean, because really the studies show that when you go to see a doctor and he gives you a medication to take and prescribes this or that, that only about 50% of the time the patients follow that advice. And if you were to interview the doctor, he would say, oh, I did a great job. Of course, I gave them medicine. They're doing great. They're going to be fine. But there is that disconnect. And this struck me uh, really, really, I, I really got a, a, an aha moment once. Um, I, 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 had, I had this patient. She was a very nice little old lady. And uh, I had sent her for this minor surgery procedure. And she's coming back to see me as a follow-up. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, she's on my schedule. This should be really, this should be really a, you know, a real easy appointment. She's going to come back. She's going to tell me she had the surgery. Everything went great. Maybe if I'm lucky, she'll bake me some little old lady brownies or something. And so I'm, so, but she comes in and she says, Dr. Abramson, I didn't have the surgery. I would not let that surgeon touch me with a 10 foot laser beam. Now, this was now what she said next, what she said next was really struck me. And, and I remember it to this day because it was so incongruous. In other words, here's this very, very genteel lady, you know, in her probably in her 80s with the white gloves, very, very soft spoken, very sweet lady. And she says, that surgeon you sent me to is one pompous prick. I, can I say that on your cup? Okay, okay, that's all right. We don't have to bleep it or anything. Okay, but that's what she said because it was so incongruous because this sweet little lady, he's one. And the thing is, she's right. I knew the guy. He was a pompous little prick. But he was a great surgeon. Technically, he was great. He had great hands, great surgery. He has, he, you know, his surgical things. But what good did all that do him? He couldn't help that lady. She wouldn't let him touch her. Because he couldn't communicate that he cared for her, that he that there was a connection, that there was trust. So that's the I think that's the issue with with communication, especially with doctors. We think we do, we think we communicate great, but we don't. And you ask me, like, what, what is, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of keys and we have a very extensive program, but here's, here's one thing, one thing that I, uh, when I talk to doctors that I, that I try to say, and, and this actually, this goes for any kind of communication you're doing. You see, as physicians, we focus on what's the matter? What's the matter? You know, where does it hurt? Uh, is it the left side? Is it the right side? Does it hurt on uh, Mondays or 
Wednesdays or is it Thursdays and Fridays? You know, is it throbbing? Is it this? You know, so we concentrate on what's the matter because when we find out what's the matter, then we can kind of um, find it, we can fix it, we can explain it, and then we can prescribe something for it. But the question I think that we physicians really need to ask somebody, ask our patients and, and ask anybody is not what's the matter, but what matters? What matters? So when someone comes in and they've and they maybe they've got just, you know, run of the mill, tension, headaches, stress, headaches, whatever you want to call them, you know, you could spend your time, you know, talking about the pathophysiology of tension headaches. You could talk about how this differs from migraine. You could talk about, you know, stress reduction classes, uh, mindfulness, goat yoga, you know, you could talk about all this stuff and spend a lot of time doing it. Or you could say, you know, what matters to this person? So the question you might ask is, you know, I see you're having a headache some, what's your biggest fear about these? And you might got to get an answer like, gosh, you know, my, my, my uh, father had a brain tumor and he had headaches and I'm just so worried. I, I'm up at night thinking, okay, so then you know. And you know that you don't have to do all this explaining and prescribing and all that. All you have to do is just reassure someone that they don't have a brain tumor. And, of course, and that's the case, you know, 99 and 9 tenths uh, thing. So it's, it's not about teaching people. I think the lesson that I learned is try to focus on not what's the matter, but what matters. Mm, that's powerful. Do they teach that at all in medical school? Or? They don't. That's I never I never learned that in medical school. Nobody ever taught that to me or anybody that I knew in medical school. And honestly, I didn't learn this kind of stuff. I uh, for the first twenty years of my practice, I was doing the find it, fix it, explain it, and prescribe it type stuff. And really, only when I got into this communication and understanding communication, then it became clear to me that what's really important, you know, is not. What's the matter? But what matters? Yeah, I can relate to that too, because oftentimes on the surface level, people will reach out to me about wanting to lose weight or look better or heal something else in their body. And oftentimes, it's not necessarily losing weight that they desire. It's the feeling and emotion that they're chasing mm -hmm. by reaching or attaining that goal. Maybe they're going to gain confidence. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're going to remove self-doubt. Mm -hmm. But it's so important to yeah. actually discover what is underneath yeah. all of this yeah. surface level conversation. Yeah. Because oftentimes you're meeting with a patient and the average, the average visit with a, a physician and patient, I believe is eight to 12 minutes in many cases. So with that framework, it sounds like it's very challenging to build a meaningful connection with patients. So Two questions. Mm -hmm. Number one, number one, how can you forge that connection in such a short time period? Number two, 
how can we change the current system to put doctors and physicians in a better position to succeed and really build that relationship with the people that they're serving? Yeah. Um, so the first, the first, first, first question, yeah, is is how do we build rapport? You know, in those in those first in those first few minutes that we have with a patient, and you know, in our in our um, Kaiser uh, teaching uh, communication mode, you know, we have a lot of strategies to do that. Um, Here's a simple one. I mean, there's, there's, I could talk, you know, I mean, there's dozens of things that I could say, but here's a simple one. Um, if I, if, if a doctor's called down, let's say like, you know, in, called down to the emergency room to see a patient. So I'm a neurologist. If they have like a stroke patient or something, I would be called down to see a patient in the emergency room. Or if you're a cardiologist and they have a cardiac problem, you'd be called to the emergency room and you do a consult down there. So in those, so most doctors, if you talk to most doctors, here's what, here's how, here's what you would say. Uh, hello, um, I'm doctor, I'm doctor uh, Abramson and I'm the neurologist and your ER doctor sent for me to see you. Or you'd say, I'm Dr. Abramson. I'm from the neurology department. I'm here to do a consult or something like that. Now that sounds, that's what most people would do. But here's a, here's a simple little just change of the words that can add to that connection and trust. So instead of going up and say, and I learned, this is something that I learned, you know, through this communication, you know, process that we have. So, so imagine you're sitting in the emergency room and I could go in and say, hi, um, I'm Dr. Abramson, I'm the neurologist. Or I could say, hi, I'm Dr. Abramson, I'm your neurologist. Mm, that's simple change. One word. I'm One your. word. I'm your neurologist. I'm your neurologist. And of course, as a as a as as the person who's doing the consult, you have to believe. You have to believe that you are their neurologist. You are their doctor. They could, you know, you have to imagine that that they are your, you know, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. Mm. Um, just simple change of words. You know, um, you let know, me let me let me piggyback off this. Okay. So one word can shift the way that the patient perceives the doctor. Yep. And that's so powerful. Whether you're a doctor listening and watching, or you are a coach, or you are a podcaster, whatever your vocation is, the more specificity, the more personal you can make this experience for that person you're working with, the more special it's going to be. Because at the root of all of our hearts, we all want to feel significant. We all want to feel like we matter. We all want to feel important. Mm -hmm. And by simply changing one word in that introduction, you're able to gain much more connection, much more trust. So I appreciate you sharing that. Continue on. Yeah. So 
um, that so that is I mean that's just one simple thing. Like I said, in our communication training, I mean we have it's very very intensive stuff. We videotape doctors working with actors. We stop the video. We replay it. We have them do all sorts of things. So it's very very intense kind of communication program. Um, so that so so that was one so you know and, and uh, it was just one word and and uh, I think it was Rudyard Kipling who said. Words are the most potent medicine of mankind. Words are the most, and they can be. They can be. What are words or sentences that people should remove from that, their vocabulary that are holding them back and potentially triggering these negative thought patterns and feedback loops. Are there any that come to mind? Yes. Well, um, you know, <laughs> one thing that, uh, yeah, a couple of things that come to mind, I think of a couple of instances. Um, I was seeing this, this very nice, this very nice uh, elderly lady. And she says, she said, Dr. Abramson, um, how do I go about changing my internist, my primary care doctor? And I said, well, why would you want to change doctors? She says, well, my, my doctor, who I had for so many years, retired, and now they assigned me to a new, a new young doctor. And I saw him. And I went in there, and I told him I was having some trouble sleeping. And he started to prescribe me a sleeping pill. And I said to him, you know, I don't, uh, I'm a little worried about taking sleeping pills. He says, don't worry. I prescribe it to old people all the time. She says, doctor, how do I change a doctor? <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, why would she want to do that, right? I mean, so sometimes, you know, just, I mean, I mean I'm, an, I'm an older person too. I'm an old person too. So, but, but if someone were to say that to me, I'd kind of take offense. So I, I think that's it. And, you know, another, this is another thing. Um, another woman, another lady patient told me, you know, you have to be so careful so careful about what you say in private because people can be listening. People are listening all the time. This lady was sitting in the waiting room and the waiting room was crowded and her doctor comes out, picks up the chart, looks at the waiting room. He's obviously having, a, I guess, a bad day. He looks at the charting room and he mutters under his breath to the nurse, these people, these people. And she said to herself, you know, I don't want to be one of these people. And, you know, he was just kind of expressing some frustration with the day, I guess, or something like that. But you got to be so careful. Yeah. Well, you mentioned this story about this lady going in to the doctor and she's saying she's have tr having trouble sleeping. And he just quickly, instinctively prescribes her a sleeping pill. Yeah. And let's be honest. I know we agree in some areas and we disagree in some areas when it comes to Western medicine and how things should be handled and what are some proper care mechanics to really get to the root cause of these different illnesses. Because right now, the way that a majority of healthcare is run in America is we're treating symptoms. We're not really treating root causes. So, I want to go back and address 
this person who's struggling with sleep because sleep is a huge epidemic happening. Sleep deprivation is a huge epidemic happening, especially in the West. And I like to go by the three, two, one principle. Do you know about this? No. All right, here's the three, two, one principle. You're not gonna eat within three hours of going to bed, okay? You're gonna give your body, your digestive system a break because your body's not supposed to be digesting food while you're sleeping. It's just not supposed to do that, okay? So no food within three hours of going to bed. No alcohol within two hours of going to bed. We know that alcohol disrupts your REM sleep, your deep sleep, and causes other dysfunction in the body, your liver, your brain. And then finally, you're not going to look at screens within one hour of going to bed. So that means Netflix and chilling, that means scrolling social media, because every time you're looking at a screen mm -hmm. in the nighttime, you're releasing cortisol, you're disrupting your circadian rhythm, and you're also uh, not allowing melatonin to be released from your body, which is again, disrupting your body's biology. So that's the three, two, one method. I wish I had the chance to see that patient who is struggling with their sleep. So if by any chance you're watching <laughs> or listening right now, or you're just someone who is also struggling with sleep, uh, that's a very simple principle to follow. If you can commit to that, I promise you'll start to notice some positive changes. In addition, so actually, really, I, honestly, we, I think we agree on that. You would do, if, you, if I put you into the, the exam room, put you in a white coat and a stethoscope, you would be more helpful to that lady than this doctor who's been training for like 50 years of his life. And, and that is, and that is, and you're right, that is the problem in, in, in a lot of Western medicine. We're, we're taught, you know, find it, fix it, explain it, and prescribe something for it. Instead of, and you're right, instead of talking to someone and, and, so what, 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 you know, why aren't you sleeping? What are your habits? What are you doing? You know? Yeah. So, yeah. And let's talk about, let's talk about also, I've read studies about how sleep deprivation actually produces and accumulates amyloid plaque in the brain, which is one of the causes for Alzheimer's and dementia. And I know that's something that, you're experienced with. I know you've witnessed people suffering with Alzheimer's and dementia later in their life. And the FDA just approved this new drug for Alzheimer's. And I think it would be valuable just to kind of get your thoughts and opinions on it. Okay. So, so here, here is is my opinion about this new therapeutic medication for Alzheimer's disease. And I, and I know this may be kind of a technical thing and it, you know, and I know some of you may not be sophisticated in medicine and so forth, but I'm going to, here's my opinion. That medicine is garbage. Mm. It really is. It doesn't do, it doesn't do anything. Um, so here's, uh, and, and probably you, some of you have read about this and so forth. And, and people will say, well, yeah, but you know, if you're, if your dad or mom had Alzheimer's, you'd want them to try. No, I wouldn't. I absolutely wouldn't. Because, and, and I, uh, you know, maybe, Jay, I don't know whether you want to talk about politics or drugs or um, pharmaceuticals or industry or anything, but here's, but here's the thing. 
this drug, um, uh, there were several studies done, at least uh, two big studies were done. And the people that, that got this medicine, you have to get it through the veins and you get it once a month through the veins. And the people that got this medicine, they really didn't, they didn't get any better and they didn't, and no, there's no medicine. There's nothing that will make Alzheimer's better. The things, the medicines we try are, are medicines that try to make it get worse slower. That's how we measure an Alzheimer's medicine. No, there's no medicine that's going to make it better. But it's like, can we give you a medicine that will make it get worse a little bit slower? And neither of these medicines really even showed that. They neither, neither of these, neither of these trials really showed that. What they did show was, you know, you mentioned the amyloid plaque that builds up in your brain. Now, we know that with people with Alzheimer's disease, they do have more of this plaque built up. But to make it sound like, I mean, to, that if you get rid of the plaque, you're going to get better from Alzheimer's disease doesn't follow from that. And apparently, so what these studies showed is that you could reduce the amount of that plaque, that amyloid plaque in your brain with these medicines. Okay, that's great. So your so your PET scan looks better. Your x-ray looks better. But you're not getting any better. You're getting slowly worse, just like the people that didn't take the medicine. So that's the bottom line. And I can, and, and this is an, ex, I mean, look, this is an expensive medicine. It's like $56,000 a year. Somebody's going to have to pay for it. It's probably you guys out there that are working stiffs and trying to make a living because if this is on Medicare and, and, uh, older people are going to get it, the government's going to pay and, uh, you're going to be paying the government. It's, 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 um, it's really, and I can tell you this. I, I retired from Kaiser a year ago, but I've been in touch with my Kaiser colleagues and Kaiser, we, we have um, like about 4 million people in Northern California, 4 million Kaiser members in Northern California. We've got uh, even more members in Southern California. We got Kaisers in Colorado, uh, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Hawaii. So I can tell you that nobody, no, none of the doctors at Kaiser are going to prescribe this. And we're going to tell our patients exactly that, that it doesn't do any good and, and it's, it could be harmful. And one of the things you may not hear people saying when they're talking about this is that 40% of the people that took this drug after a year developed brain swelling and hemorrhages in the brain. 40% who took this developed those kind of problems. Now, that's one thing. That's one thing. And the other thing is, and I heard I heard a podcast about this and people and I heard someone say, well, it's a harmless thing. I mean, why not try it? But it's not harmless. And even if even even if you bring someone, even if you give it to someone, think about this. You're going to be taking this this Alzheimer patient, grandma, grandpa. They don't want to get out of the house. They don't want to get dressed. You're going to have to drag them out of the house. You're going to have to bring them to the hospital. They may fall getting into the car and break a hip. You bring them into this hospital. They go into this room with about 20 other people and they get an IV and they get the drug. And you know, there's all sorts of bugs lying around in hospitals, infectious disease. These people are frail and vulnerable. Believe me, I, I, um, I, I am, I'm so 
proud of Kaiser because we've stepped up the plate and we and and this and we've told people this is not a good thing. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing. That's a lot of valuable information. And you know, every the physicians who aren't at Kaiser at other healthcare establishments, they're incentivized. Let's be honest, they're incentivized to prescribe this because they get 3% of that 56k which is you know, three to four thousand yeah. dollars, and 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 listen, I'm not here to question the ethical values of doctors out there, but let's be honest. I mean, there are there are incentives that might be compromised that that might be a little unethical happening. That's my opinion. You know, there's a connection between some of these healthcare companies and big pharmaceutical companies. And it's hard to ignore that. It's hard to ignore that. Mm -hmm. And I do want to take a moment. You know, I know we might have a little bit of differing views on uh, whether Alzheimer's, how much of it is genetic, how much of it is lifestyle based. I'm someone who believes that, you know, 90% of the cases could be avoided in many instances. Now, if you live to the age of my grandma, my grandpa, late 90s, that is like a natural process, okay? I understand that. However, there's people who are showing symptoms of Alzheimer's in their 50s, in their 60s, and that is not normal. That is not at all normal. You should not accept that. So I just wanna talk about a few things you can do to really optimize your brain health and put yourself in the best position to succeed to avoid getting some of these chronic diseases that are really going to strip away a lot of your life, all right? We mentioned sleep. Sleep is important. Getting consistent sleep, and we can talk about that more, but really prioritizing what time you go to bed and what time you wake up and keeping those things as consistent as possible. Your body loves consistency, okay? If you go to bed, you know, 7 p.m. one night, 11 p.m., 2 a.m., 6 p.m., like your body has no ability to really adapt and, and, and gain that rhythm. And that's why a lot of people struggle with jet lag because your body is being thrown out of its normal rhythm, okay? So prioritize your sleep, okay? Prioritize movement. It doesn't need to be structured, exercise, CrossFit, but walk, move your body. It's so important. Racket sports, anything that's going to challenge your coordination, those are great. And finally, some foods. You want to avoid industrial seed oils at all costs. These are highly inflammatory. Soybean oil, canola oil, corn oil. These are the most common oils used in America. Basically, every restaurant uses them. So replace those with high quality oils such as avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, okay? And really prioritize your brain health through nutrition. So getting those omega-3 fatty acids, right? From walnuts, from wild caught fish, from extra virgin olive oil, and, and also, you know, being mindful of what you're putting into your body because this is a vessel that you only get one of. You only get one body and you only get one, one brain. So just want to encourage you to use this opportunity 
to take ownership of your life through these different practices. You have anything to add to that, Dad? Yeah, no, those are those are all that's all great advice. I really think that is great advice for, for brain health, for just overall health. I think it really is. Yeah. So, Dad, um, what are some things that we didn't touch on today that you would like to talk about? Uh, let's see. Uh, gosh, I, 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 I can't think of, um, anything, uh, anything offhand. Did, uh, was there anything, uh, anything more that you wanted to, uh, talk about? Yeah. Uh, so this is the Thrive University podcast, yeah. right? And, and the mission here is to provide people with the knowledge, the wisdom, the tools that they don't typically receive in school. Okay. So I'm curious to know if you could control some part of the education system, what would be three principles, three lessons, three values that every child would be taught as they go through school? Hmm. You know, um, Jeremy, I'll tell you what, um, let me bef let me put that question aside about the schools. And you asked me, was there one one thing that I did want to that I didn't speak about and that that we did we hadn't spoken so far. So let me let me talk about that. And can I can I share with your audience? Can I bestow upon your audience the secret of happiness? Well, Do you guys want to know the secret of happiness according to my dad? Yeah, well, I, yeah, no, I, I'm, I am, uh, you know, being the prince of the guy that I am, I'm going to, I learned it, so I'm going to share it with you guys. Before you do. Okay. Before you do. Okay. I want to preface this. Yeah. I want to preface this. Okay. By saying that there's people watching right now. You guys compliment me on my energy, on my enthusiasm. I promise you. This man's energy and enthusiasm and overall happiness and excitement for life is unparalleled. It's unmatched. So, Dad, without further ado, mention, talk about the key, the secret, secret to happiness. happiness. Go okay. ahead. Well, the thing is, let me, I have to explain to you how I learned it because that's really important. So, because I wasn't, you know, and, and really, honestly, uh, thank you for that say, saying that, Jeremy, but it's not true because I, because like everybody else, I struggle with, with happiness. I do. And, but this, but this teaching, this learning about the secret, the secret of happiness has really, really helped me. So I'm driving into work one day. We live in San Mateo. I worked in Hayward and you have to cross this nine mile bridge to get there. And normally it's a great commute. But if there's an accident on the bridge, the whole bridge gets blacked up, backed up because there's no there was there's no um, uh, side lanes on it. At least there wasn't when this happened. So I'm so that's what happened this day. I'm going into work, and there's a uh, there's some sort of accident on the bridge, and things are backed up. Nobody is moving, and I'm on this, and I'm sitting there going to work, and my beepers beeping, my phone calls calling, my 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 staff is getting going crazy, my patients are getting real antsy, and I'm getting frustrated as hell. I'm sitting in the car, and I'm sort of you know doing crazy things to the steering wheel and shouting things, and people in the next cars are kind of looking away because they don't want to. So I mean, I, I'm going nuts. 
And so finally, after about three hours, the bridge clears off and I get into work. And as I get into work and I park in the garage, I meet Consuelo. Now, Consuelo is the, um, she is the um, e EVS person, the environmental service person, the, the garbage person, right? That's what she does. She picks up garbage. Now, she makes the same commute as I do. And she gets out of her car and she is like her usual ha happy, you know, pleasant, placid, cordial self. And I said to her, Consuelo, you know, how can you be, uh, you know, how can you be so placid and pleasant and, how, you know, how can you be so doggone happy? I mean, why aren't you like other people, frustrated and angry? I mean, that's what you should be. And she looks at me and then she revealed to me the secret of happiness. And this is it. This is the secret of happiness. This is what she said. Dr. Abramson, I am just so grateful I wasn't the one in the accident. So there you have it. You see, there's, there's one annoying event and two human responses. One is frustrated and angry and miserable, and the other one's happy. I mean, guess which one practices an attitude of gratitude? I mean, and that's the lesson is, you know, is, is being grateful. That's powerful. Yeah. Well, you know what happened? I got to, there's a follow up to the story because, you know, and like I said, I try to follow Consuelo's advice. And, and shortly after that, I was in Safeway. And it's a big, big grocery store in our area. And I was in Safeway and it was a Friday morning and I was getting a, I'm sorry to say this, Jeremy, don't get on me about this, but I got a, a dozen donuts, glazed donuts for our staff. You know, that's why that was the treat on Friday. I know. Take it easy, my friend. So, uh, so I get that and I get my donuts and I'm getting ready to go to the cashier. And there's a woman right next to me who's got like a cart full of, she's got five kids and like a whole cart full it's filled to the top. And just when that happens, the power goes out at Safeway and all the cashiers shut down. And the manager comes out and says, everybody's got to take your stuff back. And so I turn to the lady and I said, oh, man, what a revolting development this is. And she looks at me and she says, I'm just so thankful it wasn't an earthquake. Mm. I mean, these people are all over the place, you know, and we got to learn from them. Absolutely. Well, okay. This man could tell stories all day. And uh, dad, I see so many people commenting like powerful message. I think we'll, we'll stay on this live stream for like five minutes after to answer some questions because I saw a lot of them come in. Okay. But um, wow. And I think just to wrap up that, that final point you mentioned, you know, it's not always easy to, to have this attitude of gratitude. However, the more that you can practice maintaining this perspective, mm -hmm. yeah. the more that it will become natural for you. Just like building muscle, right? It doesn't happen overnight. Right. It takes repetition. It takes consistency. It's the same thing with building a bulletproof mindset and in an attitude of gratitude. This 
is a daily practice. Moment by moment, you're going to be tested. Moment by moment, you're going to have the opportunity to react and respond. So it's up to you to choose how you respond. How are you going to live your life? All right. And uh, as we wrap I want to take a moment <laughs> to acknowledge you for everything, man. This, wow, for, for supporting me every step of the way, for teaching me all about respect, unconditional love, discipline, work ethic, kindness, generosity. I, I really have no idea where I'd be without your guidance. So thank you so much for being a great father, role model, and best friend. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, my And uh, I'll tell you what, Jeremy, um, I want you to write out a hundred times, I can speak my voice. I can no speak one's going my to, truth. You can speak your truth. No one's going to stop you. Amazing. All right, fam. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I hope that you got some sort of value from this conversation. I certainly did. We'll make sure to have a round two, round three. Maybe we'll make this like a monthly thing, like a episode, because honestly, you know, some of this stuff is new to me and, you know, I've known my dad for 30 years. So um, thank you for listening. If you got value from this conversation, please, please, please share the show with a friend, with a family member and leave a review. It allows us to reach more people and impact more lives. It only takes a few seconds. So leave a review for the show. Let us know what was the biggest takeaway you had. And um, let me know. Let us know if you'd like a round two with this father-son combo. Again, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen and watch. Dad, you have any final words? Uh, you know, be grateful. Be grateful. Amazing. Amazing. Express that gratitude by showing love, showing love for someone in your life, showing love for yourself and showing love for the show. So love you. Appreciate you. We'll see you back here shortly. You know, we're pumping out episodes of the best content with the best guests to help transform every aspect of your life so you can stop settling for mediocrity and start thriving. All right, fam. Love you so much. Peace. <laughs> oh my goodness, podcast fam. I hope that episode touched you. I hope that episode resonated with you in some capacity because I literally got goosebumps during most of that conversation with my dad. You know, I know this man for my whole life, 30 years, but some of these stories he shares with me are fresh and it's always so beautiful to connect with him in a deeper, more meaningful way. And I'm grateful that we had the opportunity to share this conversation with you. So if you got any value from this conversation, from this episode, please, 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 please show some love on iTunes. Leave a review for the show. It genuinely makes such a huge difference and allows us to impact more lives. And guess what? If you leave a review, which literally only takes 15 seconds, 
screenshot that review and then DM it to me on Instagram at CoachJeremy305 and I'm gonna hook you up with something special. So all you gotta do, leave that review, screenshot it to me on Instagram and I'm gonna hook you up with something special. Again, fam, I love you so much and that is why I am committed to this mission of constantly elevating, constantly growing because if I'm not thriving. If I'm not becoming the best version of myself, how am I able to help you become the best version of yourself? So please take some time to prioritize your health, your happiness, because once you do that, everything else will radiate. Trust me. I love you. I support you. And you already know what time it is. It's time to unleash your potential and thrive.